Hey, well, good to see you. My name is Jake, and uh, today I, um, I'm excited to be up here because I'm not teaching, but I'm going to be interviewing. going to be chatting with a friend of mine named Wally. I'll explain that in a second. But we're in uh, the middle of a series that we're calling Text. Uh, here's the premise of it. Here's the idea. Uh, we are conditioned. We have a problem, honestly, as a society. When we hear this sound right here, this, this little vibration that comes up, we are compelled, we are conditioned to reach down into our pockets, pull out our phone, and to look at it and to read our... Ten- That's the thing. We always read our text. Always. You've never heard anybody say, I got your text, but I didn't read it because I don't like to read. Never heard that before. But yet, I have heard as a pastor that excuse used many, many times when it comes to a very important text that we have received. And we asked last week, if the president of the United States, or two weeks ago, if he would text you, would you read that text? Then we saw that it was true, and all of us would read that text. But then, if God would have sent you a text, would you read it? And the question is, uh, unfortunately, or the problem is, uh, this Bible, this book, this text that we've received is often revered, but is very rarely read. And so we... started this series because of that. Um, And the first week was simply this. We were just trying to get anybody to pick up the book and read it. Dust it off, grab it, read it up. Just just read it. Just start to read what God has to say to us. And then the next week was probably my favorite week where we talked about the, um, answered the question, um, can we trust the text? And I loved it. We put the, the Bible under the microscope. We held it up to the light, and we saw that the evidence is overwhelming, uh, that you truly can trust this book. And then last week, we decided, hey, let's, uh, let's talk about how we study this thing. So that was when we um, unveiled Grow Tools, and we handed those out, um, and Garrett just <laughs> referred to them. I thought I would bring up the visual aid with me. Um, so there you are. Um, <laughs> But all that to say, today is probably going to be um, my favorite of all is because I get to sit down and talk to a very dear friend of mine, and the, today's premise is uh, question the book. And it's not doubt the book, but it's like, this book is confusing, is it not? Uh, it, it, it's complex, it's layer on top of layer, and so truly what we want to do is we want to ask some of the more difficult questions, and that's what you've been doing. We put a text up on the screen for the last three weeks where you could text in whatever question you had about this book, and we're going to do our best to answer it, or I'd say we, but Wally's going to do his best to answer it, and so here's who Wally is. Uh, Wally was a professor at Northwest University, a professor of theology for almost 30 years. And I had the blessing of sitting underneath his teaching when I was at Northwest University for a small period of time. At that point in time, I did not know I was going to go into the ministry. So I, um, I, I really loved his classes, and I was really engaged in his classes, uh, but I didn't think I was going into the ministry. Next thing, and lo and behold, I'm a youth pastor, and I've got to learn theology ASAP. And so I had already went through college. So my, my, my solution was simply this. I need to ask the professor. So I would go. And for about 15 years, I sat down with Wally in different coffee shops. I don't drink coffee. I'd buy him his London Fog. That was the deal. Got him his London Fog. He would have that. And then he would answer whatever question I had. And, I, and he did. And it was amazing. And so for 15 years, that's been kind of our relationship where we would um, have a conversation over coffee or over tea. Um, basically asking him anything I could think of. And his mind, you guys, is brilliant. It's brilliant. God has given him an amazing gift that I wish I could have. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not even going to go into it. It's about talking about a book that I've been reading for the last two weeks. And I told him, it's like, yeah, it's about 300 pages. And I'm like, how long would that take you? I just happened to ask him that question. He's like, completely humble. He's like, about 20 minutes. I'm like, 20 minutes? What the crap? You know, wasting two weeks of my life trying to get through this book. And, you know, I mean, he can do it in 20 minutes. It's amazing. Photographic memory, just a mind on another level. And so oftentimes when I sit in these conversations, I think, man, I just love people to listen on into this. Other people have to hear this. So that's why he's here. Um, When we started this church was about the same time he decided to step out of um, Northwest University, and he decided to take his prestigious job and move to Indonesia, where he and his wife are now um, missionaries over there. And it's full circle because now as a church, we support them as missionaries, and so which is beautiful. So would you please do me the favor of welcoming my friend, uh, Professor Wally Kowalski, as he comes up. Thanks, 
There you go. All right, well, um, do this. Before we jump into any questions, can you, um, I would love it if you would tell, um, I mean, I know a little bit, obviously, because uh, we've talked about it, but tell me and tell everyone here uh, a little bit about what you're doing in Indonesia right now. Well, we went over there. We were asked to plant an English-speaking church uh, in a city of about 5 to 8 million people. Nobody's quite sure because of the way people live there in um, what they call kampungs, little villages. And no, you, you don't know how, how many people are actually living in any one area. Um, one of the areas in our city is actually considered the densest uh, populated area on the, in the world. And it, no skyscrapers, it's just, yeah, yeah anyway. And when we got there, uh, what, what God called us to was something really unconventional. And so we're doing a lot of Bible studies. We're doing something that you might call dinner church. We call it community dinners because if it's church, a lot of people there can't come to it. Uh, we do something called movie night where we'll have 80 people at our house. Yes, yes, and I love it because you're watching movies I would watch, like, you know, Princess Bride and, yeah. and uh, okay, things like that. Okay, let's take that one. Okay, so we're watching Princess Bride, which is one of my favorite flicks, you know. My name is Inigo Montoya. Anyway. Right. That's um, right. Right, yeah, yeah. And you so, just spoke to the heart of everyone in here, right there. <laughs> so we always ask a question that is designed to lead in conversation. About 80, 85% of the people there are non-Christian. Okay? And they know we're Christian. We've, we've gotten permission to pray for them, like I, we pray for the food, pr uh, say a prayer, a blessing over them before they leave. But they, they're, they're not supposed to hang around Christians. But anyway, they do with us, which is very cool. And um, we, we asked them a question. In the case of Princess Bride, something really intense happens because Prince Humperdinckt, um, at, at the end, you know, um, uh, like the, the, you, you've got a story inside the story. The little boy, his grandpa's reading to him, and, and he insists that the bad guy has to die. Well, right at the end, Prince Humperdinck has forgiven, uh, in a sense. He doesn't suffer for his sins, for his crimes, and stuff like that. And so he asks the question, is it okay to be forgiven? And that's the question you lead off in these discussions. And then we have a discussion on how many, that. You said to me, how many, how many uh, percentage-wise of um, Muslims actually show up there? You said it's oh, overwhelming. I would um, say to, to that gathering, probably about 80, 85% of the people are Muslim. Yeah. The rest will be uh, atheist, a few Christians, atheist or Buddhist. Yeah, that is real ministry so right there. It's cool. Yeah, it is very cool. And I'm so I'm so humbled and excited that we get to be a part of that thank with you. you for that partnership yeah. and please pray for us we are in a fairly intense part of the world so right. i won't say much more than that well let's do this we got a bunch of questions here that have been texted in from our peoples and uh, and i'm going to throw you one softball and okay. then i'm going to then we're going to go into some of the more difficult questions that people would ask when it comes to god's word okay. and so let's start off with the one softball in this is what does it mean when the Bible is referred to as inspired. And these are compilations compiled of a bunch of different people. I kind of paraphrase some of these um, from what the questions have been asked, but that's the main idea. What does it mean when the Bible is referred to as inspired? Yeah, it's, that's a quote from Second um, Timothy 3.16. Um, all scripture is inspired, the King Jimmy puts it. Um, the, the actual language is more, it's God-breathed. So, uh, the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. We, we refer to this as God's Word, singular, but it's really the words of a whole bunch of different authors. And in some way, without God dictating it, they wrote what God intended to say to humanity using their own words, using their own cultural reference and stuff like that. But uh, God is speaking to us through his text letting us know what he's like, what we should be like, and telling us honestly what people really are like. You know? That's great. All right, that was your easy one. Okay. Okay, here we go. Jump right into it. Is the Bible inerrant? Um, in other words, uh, does the Bible contain any errors or contradictions? And if it does, how can we trust it? For, you know, um, for example, the cursing of the fig tree. 
In scripture, right within there, whether when it withers, when Jesus curses it, in Matthew 21, it says it withers immediately, like right on the spot. But Mark says it withers overnight. And there are, if you go online, lists, I mean, of hundreds of these apparent type of contradictions or contradictions, if, if you mean, um, where, where people would say, well, if the Bible isn't true all the way throughout, it's a house of cards. Yeah. And if you can prove this one thing to be wrong, then the whole thing comes crashing down. So the big question is, is the Bible inerrant? Um, yes, it is. Uh, but you have to understand it was, um, it's written for a purpose, and it achieves the purpose God intended. So the story of the fig tree wasn't a story about horticulture. Okay. Yeah. You know, I like, uh, this, is, this is how you plant fig trees and stuff like that. Right. Uh, Jesus is talking about the big religious system of his day, and he's saying it's, it's, it's dying. Mm -hmm. it's, it's falling apart. Um, I'll, I'll get into the actual stuff that's said because I believe that uh, the, the Bible doesn't contradict itself there mm -hmm. in, in this uh, instant. And, and I would argue that uh, I, I don't know of any one place where, you know, uh, where if you look at it a little bit, you can't say, oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay. All right. Um, but, but really, this isn't a story about fig trees. It's a story about religion. But yeah. what happens is both Matthew and Mark tell us the story. Mm -hmm. Matthew has it happening immediately. Uh, Mark um, extends the story. Mm -hmm. They have the encounter with the fig tree one morning, right. and the next morning when they come back, Peter looks at it and says, oh, it is withered, mm -hmm. you know, actually from the roots up. Um, those two things are not in conflict. You have a fig tree, you've got the same general event, and it withers. Now, in, in Matthew's story, uh, he uses what's called the aorist tense in Greek, mm -hmm. and that's action at a glance. It's one of the more common things, the, the, the way the, uh, the Bible uses Greek. So you're looking at something and you observe this. Yeah. So apparently what happened is when they walk up to the tree, it's like, ah, you know, it's, it's, it's alive. And then a little <laughs> Is that while what later, alive looks like? Yeah, that's, that's what, <laughs> see, that's... Yeah, Dead. you're, yes, you're into trees here and all that, <laughs> Arbor Church, right? Uh, so it's, it's alive, and a little while later, you look at it, and it's a, uh, you know, like that. Um, my imitation of a withering fig tree. Uh, it's so good. There's, it's there's, really good. Cool. Um, so you've got some sort of an immediate thing that happens where you look at it, and you say, oh, yeah, uh, there's been a change in state. Uh, Mark actually uses what's called the perfect tense, and the perfect tense puts emphasis on a state that results from something that's happened before. Hmm. And Peter says, look, the tree is now withered from the root up. Mm -hmm. Okay, so those two things are not in conflict. Right. When they walk up to it and Jesus says, you're not going to have any more fruit, it immediately starts to wither. The next day when they come back, it's not just like this. It's laying on the ground dead, you know, sort of thing. I'm not going <laughs> to do the acting yeah. out of that. But... So, you know, is, is that in conflict? No, it, it withered immediately, yeah. and then it was totally withered just a little yeah. while later. But reading it in our translation, mm. it apparently appears to be in contradiction. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that actually something you said in my office a little while ago. You said that some of the translations are flawed. Um, but you're also saying, but you're, but that's yeah. the translation. But the original Greek, the word, the original Hebrew that it's written in, you don't see any conflict in that whatsoever. Okay, we're we're going to have another discussion where there is an apparent conflict okay. because it's the same word that's used mm -hmm. multiple times. But but we'll 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 deal with that. And it, it, it's look, Ang English is not a great language for expressing yourself precisely. Mm. Um, uh, languages like German and so on are way, way more precise. That's because right. That's We're both German's German. Yeah, yeah, I got heads, you. We're you know, good. Sort of thing. Um, uh, uh, Indonesian is much worse. When we're walking down the street, uh, uh, my wife is, hey, mister, because, you know, it's... Um, they, they don't have that many distinguishing things. You just... Uh, okay, uh, I, I go is, is the verb. I go yesterday, <laughs> is the way you put it, or I go tomorrow, but it's all the same verb, right? So Greek is very precise. You can tell 
who did what to whom, when it happened, how likely it was that this actually occurred, etc., etc. We don't have that same precision in English. So if I could encourage you all to learn Greek and Hebrew, yeah, I would, because it's, uh, you'll, you'll understand a whole lot more of what's going on. And, yeah. and don't do it just so you can like, win in arguments. You know, that, that's yeah. missing the whole point. Yeah. But, yeah. That's great. Well, here's another question. What are, this is a big deal, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so important? Uh, 2006, Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a whole exhibit that toured I Seattle. Saw like yeah. a, you went there, yeah. yeah like a rock band, they just came through. And, uh, uh, but it was the Dead Sea Scrolls. Why are they so important? Um, you know, uh, you, you were talking about the manuscripts, like you, you discussed this yeah, a, couple a couple of weeks, weeks ago. ago. Um, for the New Testament, it's the weight of manuscript evidence that really assures us that what we have is accurate. For the Old Testament, it was the precision of copying, but we don't have that many manuscripts of the um, Old Testament written in Hebrew. In fact, the oldest ones we had dated to 920 and uh, 1008. Mm -hmm. And so they're like way, way after the time of the writing of the Old Testament. Yeah. So how are we sure that these are uh, correct copies? Mm -hmm. We find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and in all of this material, which dates to about the time of Christ, from, say, 100 years before him to about his time, we find copies of all of the writings of the Old, not, not every single word, but uh, copies of each book of the Old Testament other right. than Esther, we find two copies of the scroll of Isaiah, which is very significant because of the messianic prophecies and so on. Mm -hmm. And they're word for word what we've got. Yeah. Confirming so, that what God said is mm -hmm. what, or what we have is what was originally yep. written. So all of a sudden we've moved back our data uh, a thousand years closer to yeah. the time of writing. Yeah. And so that's pretty significant. That, that, is, that gives us a lot of confidence that the Old Testament is trustworthy as we have it. Yeah. That's amazing. So, yeah. All right, let's talk on the Old Testament for a second. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of conflict on the Old Testament as of late. Should we still study the Old Testament, um, and does it apply to us today still under the new covenant that we are um, in? For example, um, there's a lot of Old Testament laws, such as you can't eat pork and shellfish and ritual clean, clean, cleanings and, um, and then uh, the Sabbath. Why do we follow some of those laws um, that are written in the Old Testament and then don't follow other laws that are written in the Old Testament? Um, where you've been is important, but it doesn't define where you're going. If you ever go like out in a speedboat, skiing mm -hmm. or whatever, you're not going to steer the boat by looking over your shoulder back at your wake. Mm -hmm. You want to know where you're headed, okay? So uh, understanding where we've come from is insightful. Uh, I used the example before of uh, Passover, for instance. Yeah. Understanding the Passover and what occurred gives us something that helps us understand Easter and what Jesus did and what happens when we celebrate communion together. But we're not told to celebrate that every time. Um, some yeah. of the Old Testament is very situational. Uh, so, for instance, even as Israel is going to the Promised Land, Deuteronomy 12, verse 15, God says then, uh, when you enter the Promised Land, go ahead and eat of your livestock. Apparently, mm -hmm. they weren't supposed to have their cows and sheep and stuff like that for right. food, while they were wandering around the desert. They, those were reserved for sacrifice. Now that they enter the promised land, they're supposed to go ahead and eat that as they've eaten the wild animals, the antelope and gazelle. So there's a change. Right. In the New Testament, we've got a much more drastic change. Cornelius. Cornelius, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. And so isn't that good? Yes. Because otherwise you and I couldn't have bacon. Oh, yeah, I, I had some bacon Just wrapped meat in prawns general. the other day. I, I, you know? We had, oh, we had man, porterhouse steak last night. Oh, it was yeah. really great. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so God is good. He uh, allows us to eat stuff. He put it there for our enjoyment. I, I know why people are so uptight and think that God is this person who's trying to stop you from having fun. We could have a long conversation on that. If you've ever seen the film Equilibrium, it's got everything completely backwards. Um, Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Uh, let's talk about Jesus really quickly. He says, I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Yeah. And so the quick example there is if you've got a mortgage, tearing it up before it's paid off is a bad idea. That's yeah. abolishing it. You'll be out on the street. Yeah. Paying it off means that you can then burn that mortgage statement because nobody cares. Now, you'd be foolish to keep sending your money to Wells Fargo after yeah. it's paid off or whichever company you've got your mortgage with. Yeah. Um, Jesus paid it off. Yeah. Okay? 
Now, there are still some things we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this. Yeah. There are like two great laws, right? What's yeah. the biggest law? You got it. What's the second one? Okay, those are the two. The vertical axis of relationship with God, the horizontal axis of your neighbor, the people around you. Yeah. That sums up the whole thing. Well, yeah, and that's what Jesus said, right? He said the, the, summing, uh, the, the greatest in the prophets are to sum up all the prophets. Absolutely. Two things, those yep. two things. So, um, you know, all, all of these other regulations are just commentary on how to do this. Now, there's some things that aren't in the Bible. Road rage. Yeah, you brought that up last service, and you, sh- you didn't know a story I shared a few weeks ago. Um, so um, I thought that was terrible timing. <laughs> hey, sorry to rain on your parade. Yeah, I know. There's I know, a Polish, they... uh, Polish proverb I really love. It says, not my circus, not my monkeys. And uh... Wait, what? <laughs> I'm going to pretend like I know what you mean on that, right? Not yeah. my circus, not, not my monkeys. My monkeys. In other words, okay. okay, that was your problem. That's not mine. Oh, I'm not okay, taking okay. it on. You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it so happens that I do feel strongly about the idiots who are um, on the road with me. See, amen. I told you. Yeah, exactly. Continue. Everybody who's driving slower than me is in like a fool, and everybody who's faster than me is an idiot. I feel <laughs> like it's biblical. I do. But yeah. continue. So, like, how do I express love to the people on the road with me? Continue. Okay. No, no. Um, so the Bible doesn't address each situation, mm-hmm. but it does give us some principles, and that is loving God above everything else, your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah. That's great. Um, let's stay in the Old Testament. Here's a question that I have been asked one zillion times um, when it comes to being a pastor. Um, how do you make sense of the wrathful Old Testament God? So uh, a jealous God, a God of animal sacrifices um, who orders mass genocide on several occasions, right? With the loving, forgiving Father God of the New Testament. And so if God is the same yesterday and today and forever, mm-hmm. then what happened? What, what are we missing there between mm-hmm. the two gods of the Old Testament and the New Testament? Which is one, but seem to be a little different. Yeah. What's your thoughts? Um, the example I'd love to use for this is um, a guy called Moses. And um, he, just after the whole golden calf incident, you can read about this in Exodus the 30s, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go into chapter 34. Uh, uh, Moses is heading up the mountain, has just chiseled out two stone reta- tablets uh, because he broke all Ten Commandments at once. He's a really bad guy. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. so he's got to make two replacements, right? And he's headed up the mountain. We're and, all just getting that, but continue. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and so the Exodus 34, verse 5, Then the Lord came down in the cloud, stood there with him, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Mm-hmm. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's God's description of himself. Yeah. That's in the Old Testament. Gotcha. So you make that description of yourself. I could say I'm the nicest guy, but if I cause a worldwide flood that wipes out 95% of the population. Okay. How... So next verse, or keeping on, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to third and fourth generation. And here's Moses' response. He gets it. He's not the guy who sinned. But Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. God's response, I'm making a covenant with you. Mm -hmm. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. In other words, God's saying, I want to forgive. This is what I want. If you don't ask for forgiveness, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Moses gets it. And even though he isn't the one with the problem, if you will, he bows down and says, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call in a marker. If I have a relationship with you, will you forgive these people? And God says, yeah, I can do that. 
It's really what he wanted to do. Look, how much, how much of the time does God spend talking about how compassionate, loving, abounding in grace and all that before he just says, if you're guilty, I'm not going to leave you unpunished. Mm-hmm. But immediately before that, he says, I forgive all rebellion and sin and so on. Mm-hmm. That's what God does. Now, the flood, yeah, that's pretty yeah. drastic. But you know what? If you've got cancer, you want the doctor to get the cancer out of your body. Explain. Yeah. You know, the doctor isn't coming at you with a knife to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the doctor wants to do his best. Uh, I'm, you know, both of us have had daughters who've, mm-hmm. who've gone through really tough stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it hurts as a parent, man. Yeah. And yet they are doing their best to help maintain life. Mm-hmm. And um, from the outside, you might say, wait a second, this big man is taking a knife to my little daughter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, what, what is the purpose? The purpose is to do the best you can to preserve life. Yeah. Um, God says, and he knows way more about all this than I do, if I don't do surgery right now, this is all going to go sideways. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm going to trust the God who has consistently, Old Testament and New, shown himself to be a God of love who cares and wants to preserve life. So it's yeah. the best I've got. And by the way, um, later on in Jeremiah 31, you, you, you need to read uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. It's really cool. Uh, in verse 31, he talks about how he's going to make a new covenant with Israel where he's going to forgive the sins and he's going to write his laws on the hearts of the people so people don't need to teach each other and preach to each other because it's all going to be in there. It's going to rescue us himself. Mm-hmm. This is the God we love Yeah, who is there and he's, he's for us. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Thank you, Wally. Uh, let's do this question. Does God change his mind? And I have an example for you on this one. I, I thought about it ahead of time. Uh, for example, let's just look at In some passages, the answer is yes. Other passages is no. Um, yes is an example in 1 Samuel uh, where the Bible says, God said himself, it says, I regret, so, um, you know, changing his mind, I regret that I have made King Saul, um, Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Then later in Samuel, it says, he who is glorified of Israel, so God, does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a human being that he should change his mind. So in that instance, it looks like, no, he doesn't change his mind. Yet later it says, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So it's crazy. Not only do we have three different examples of God changing his mind, not changing his mind, changing his mind, whatever. They're not only in the same book of the Bible, they're literally in the same chapter of the Bible. And so does God change his mind? Yeah. Uh, Great question. Um, So this is 1 Samuel 15, if you want to look it up, uh, verse 10 and 11, and then 29 and 35. And here's the bad news. In all three instances, the same Hebrew word is used in the same form. It's uh, translated sometimes as repent. Mm -hmm. And so in verse 29, it says, God does not repent. And in verse 35, it says, the Lord repented that he had made Saul. Okay. Okay. So like um, seven verses apart, 29, 35, six, you know, uh, if you count it, seven, right? Weird math. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Here's the thing. Uh, The same person wrote this passage, one person. Uh, Traditionally, it's Samuel who wrote this. He didn't write the part in the books of Samuel where he died. Some other prophet probably (laughs) wrote that down. But we're we're not sure exactly who wrote it. But it was one person, and they weren't expecting this to be that confusing. Mm -hmm. Well, with Greek, we've got um, the verb tenses changing. That makes it really clear what's going on. With... um, Hebrew, Hebrew is a very poetic language. It's not as precise as some other languages. And a single word can do different things. So, Mm -hmm. for instance, the word bless Mm -hmm. also is used, the exact same word also means curse, greet, favor, and praise. That's a little confusing. That's a little bit confusing. The word power also means army, virtue, worth, and covering. 
So you have to figure out the context of what's going on to understand what the word means. Mm -hmm. So whoever wrote this is using the Hebrew word that's at their disposal, mm -hmm. but they're very clearly not trying to say that God changed his mind. So here's what I read this as. The word that used uh, also has a sense of having sorrow. Was God sorrowful over what had happened with Saul? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And in fact, uh, God had warned Israel of what would happen. If you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses warns the people what's going to happen if they choose to have a king. That's a long time before this. Right, right. Okay? And then Samuel, when the people start asking for a king, reminds them and says, this is what's going to happen. God knows precisely what's going to happen because I believe that God, not being limited to time as we are, right. knows the future perfectly. He can tell them exactly what's going to happen and says, this is it. And they say, but we want a king. And God says, okay, you can have right. a king. Uh, is God sorrow, sorry that they've chosen to have a king and that this king has done precisely what God told them he would do? Yeah. yeah. Would God go back and undo his choice? No. He's not going to change his mind in terms of, oh, man, I wasn't expecting that. Right. If only I could have a mulligan on this one, you know? <laughs> right. um, no, that's, that's not the way it works for God. He knows precisely what's yeah. going to happen. He, he does what is right. But does God say, man, it really sucks what you chose? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. It's another uh, advertisement for us to learn he Hebrew and Greek. Sure. Is that right? Yeah, I would yeah. say so. Yeah. So it would make a huge difference. Yes. All right. So should, here's the next, next question. Should the Bible, this is a big one, should the Bible be interpreted as literal? Oh, man. Uh, the Bible should be interpreted literarily, not literally. <laughs> yeah, go ahead and explain that. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, What's poetry should not be read like an engineering diagram, okay? Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, um, I, I think there's a lot of amazing stuff in there that uh, really fits with science a fair bit, but it wasn't intended to be a set of instructions on how to create your own universe. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you are building a, a rocket ship, you don't take the engineering uh, parameters and specs and interpret them poetically. <laughs> you know, oh, this says that should be precisely 3.7 millimeters. I think it'd be close enough if I did five inches, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not the way it's going to work. Uh, and in fact, they had a, um, an, a spaceship that crashed because somebody confused meters and, and feet or something like that. It was, yeah, seriously. Uh, so that that's, <laughs> was an expensive, uh, poetic moment. Um, at the same time, I'm going to say this. Within those liter uh, literary things, yeah. there's some amazing literal stuff that happens. Um, quick story. We were snowed in uh, last year, 2017. I was here to get my U.S. citizenship. Okay, And uh, the Sunday, uh, after I picked up the papers and all of that, uh, we were snowed in, so we had church as a family, and uh, we asked the grandchildren what their favorite song was so we could sing a worship song together, and, and Levi chose Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, at which the adult <laughs> smiled and his sister scoffed, because that's not a hymn. Yeah. And I said, well, wait a second, and then we read Psalm 8 and Psalm 19 together, which talk about the stars declaring God's glory. Uh, they're the handiwork of his fingers, and they pour out praise. You know, it isn't that long ago that we found out that the stars actually sing or emit radio waves or do something uh, beyond just light and twinkle. And we talked about the God who makes himself known in his works. And afterwards, we sang that great hymn of the church, Twinkle, Twinkle, yeah. Little Star. <laughs> um, Sounds like a great day of church right it, there. It really was. We'll, because we'll, we'll talk to Kara and Jack about that for next week. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the thing is, um, even when uh, the poetry speaks, it still uh, it, it doesn't mean it doesn't describe a reality that's beyond the poetry. And so in, in the psalmist's praise to God, speaking of stars, speaking forth the glory of God, yeah. uh, many years later we figure out, you know what? 
They're doing something. We don't know what it is. I, I bet you they're singing forth the glory of God. That's amazing. Cool. Yeah. Try this one. Uh, pretty specific. The Bible is uh, pretty clear that God is good and cannot bear evil. Why then does God send an evil spirit to trouble King Saul? <sighs> well, I'd probably argue that God doesn't send as much as the evil spirit is sent from his presence, not sent by, if, if you understand what I'm trying to make as a distinction. Um, in the story of Job, when the angels appear before God, Satan appears with him, and he gets permission from God to go and mess with Job to a certain extent. Yeah. And he goes from there to do things. Now, does God say to him, hey, Satan, I'd like you to go and mess with Job? No. Uh, he gives um, Satan a, a certain amount of permission. He limits him. And, and so whatever all is happening in this, Satan is not going to be ha able to have any effect in your life that God hasn't permitted. Mm -hmm. uh, now, by the way, we can put ourselves in harm's way. You can do stupid things and make choices to be in places where you're going to be in trouble. Okay? But in general, God is not going to allow Satan to do something to you that um, isn't under God's control. And God does a number of things through that evil spirit. He puts the story of Saul and David together. Because that's where David comes in whenever he plays for Saul. Uh, the evil spirit lifts. It's probably um, some form of mental illness that's going on. That's the particular manifestation of whatever this evil spirit is doing because there's depression and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, and it lifts. So you, you've got a bunch of things that happen in this. God, uh, Satan may want to mess with God's plan. God already knows how it's going to end up. By the way, you, you need to understand Satan is only an angel. Uh, he does not have omniscience, omnipresence, or omnipotence. He can't do whatever he wants. He doesn't know the future, and he can only be in one place at a time. So he's very limited. God is the one who's in control. Yeah. <laughs> and even in the end, even the evil spirits do God's bidding. Right. But it's not like God says, okay, I'm going to send some evil spirits to mess with people. No, uh, they want to mess with people. And at times, God says, all right, I'm going to let you do this because I know how it's going to work out. Gotcha. That's great. Um, what do you think? The, I, I don't know if there's a guy or a gal who texted this in, um, but they said that they work in the scientific community. That's mm -hmm. where they're at. And, and they said, does science and the Bible um, contradict or complement each other? And, and I think the reason he or she was asking this is that they work in that community and they're wondering um, how can they explain um, a Bible that has a lot of faith-filled answers to a very logical, data-minded um, group of individuals. Oh, a couple of great books I'd recommend. One is by John Lennox, a famous British scientist. It's called God's Undertaker? Question mark, And it's the whole issue of is science God's undertaker? And the answer is no. And then another book that's just been uh, published, and I'm reading some reviews from it, uh, John Polkinghorne, I don't remember the title of it, but it's a brand new one by him, and it talks about the interface of science and God and the Bible. God has spoken in two major ways. His works that everybody can observe, according to Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, God has put that there so uh, specifically and clearly that people everywhere are without excuse. If you look at what's been created, mm -hmm. your conclusion pretty much has to be, unless you suppress it, which is given as a possibility there, your conclusion has to be that there's a creator. Mm -hmm. I mean, I live in a house, which I'm pretty sure was built by somebody. Mm -hmm. um, even if I had not ever met the person who built it, mm -hmm. I'd still be sure it was built by somebody. Uh, my house is nowhere near as complex as this universe. Right. Um, so that's his works and then his word. Now, um, for evaluating his works, science is a really good tool. Mm -hmm. For evaluating his word, not so much. So if you're trying to evaluate the Bible scientifically, you're trying to weigh a car using a battery tester. 
you know, you're using the wrong tool for the purpose you're trying to achieve. Gotcha. Um, I, I do believe that uh, science may, uh, has a lot to teach us. I love science. I'm, I love to keep my mind active. Yeah. But um, it, it's not the right tool for evaluating scripture. But there are some excellent books out there, and there's some great thinking. There, there are a lot of smart people who are both scientists and Christians. Yeah. What about this one? Why are there so many tr Bible translations? And which one of them is the best? Well, I'd like all of you to learn Greek and Hebrew, if at all possible, uh, because uh, you'll, you'll have a better handle on what is actually being said. Um, beyond that, though, uh, if you're not going to be able to read Greek and Hebrew, you should read the Bible in your own language. And you should read it in something you can understand. Mm -hmm. So the King James is actually a pretty decent translation. It's got a couple of flaws um, but the biggest one is language has changed. And so, for instance, uh, back then, uh, the psalmist says, I will prevent the sun. What's that mean? It, well, it actually comes from a French word, prevenir, to uh, be before. So, before the sun comes up, I will pray, is what he's saying in that passage. But, you know, if you're reading it with uh, modern day thinking, you're thinking, how in the world do you stop the sun? And uh, so there are, there are a lot of things like that that just have changed meaning. So uh, the, the, the key for us is to find something that makes sense to us. And uh, not, not the one that we like, necessarily. Uh, if the Bible isn't making you uncomfortable, it probably isn't doing its job, you know. But um, uh, to, to find one you can understand and interact with. Uh, the NIV is kind of a standard in a lot of churches. It's not bad. There are things I hate about it, but there, it's, it's not bad. Uh, some people are ESVites and so on. If you want to know what the words are, uh, probably one of the better ones is the NASB. It stinks for reading out loud. It, it, it's awkward, but it gives you a really good idea. It's more literal word yeah, for word. There you go. That's what I was going to ask. Word for word translation at exactly. that point. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, if you want to read it and kind of interact with it, the New Living Translation is actually pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I like that one. So, yeah. Another big question. Love this one. How and when was the canon or the books of the Bible put together? Hmm. And how do we know that the right books were selected? For example, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, they're excluded. You don't have First and Second Maccabees, you know. Uh, so explain that a little bit. How do we know that the 66 books that are contained inside of here are the books that were inspired by God and meant to be there by him? Well, we don't really need to do a lot of discussion on the 39 of the Old Testament because by the time Jesus comes on the scene, he's already affirming that. He's quoting from big swaths of them and so on so, uh, and, and makes reference to the law and the prophets and the writings and so on. So, um, so that's already kind of fixed. The big puzzle would be uh, which of the New Testament books belong there. And... Um, the, the, uh, uh, by the middle of the second century, by about 150, you're already having uh, material from each of the uh, of what we have as the New Testament being quoted, used. Uh, people are dying for it. One of the big issues, you have um, uh, a bunch of different uh, persecutions going on within the Roman Empire. And one of the big issues is you need to give up the text, you, you need to give up your Bible or die. And so what are you willing to die for? You're not willing to die for Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's good, though. Yeah, I mean, it is good. Yeah, we're but you're not the, willing to die for My daughter and I are reading The Hobbit. We did Riddles in the Dark last night. It was awesome. Cool. So I'm not going to die for it, though. So would you die for the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas? And, and the people agreed, basically, no, I wouldn't. Um, every now and then you see in the news they found another one of the lost books of the Bible. They weren't lost. They were discarded. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were set aside. These were known back then. They just were judged as not being of the same value, of not being of the same quality. They were not worthy of being read aloud in a church service alongside the books of the Old Testament. That was actually one of the biggest criteria. We know that Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians. We know this for sure because he mentions them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, as I wrote you in my previous letter. Uh, we don't have that previous letter. 
And in 2 Corinthians, he refers to a sorrowful letter. We don't have it. Um, why don't we have it? Because God didn't say this is what should be included. One of my favorite J.I. Packer quotes is, the church no more gave us the canon of scripture than Sir Isaac Newton gave us gravity. Okay? So, uh, Newton observes an apple falling, or so the story goes, and starts thinking about it and deduces gravity and all that kind of stuff. Okay, does that invent gravity? Does that create gravity? When the church comes together and says, okay, these are the books, does that create the canon of Scripture, or are they simply observing, these are the books that are different from all other books? And that's my perspective. That's what they're doing. They're saying, okay, these books are different from, you know, the other materials we have, like the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, the, these various other Gospels and stuff like that, which aren't really Gospels because they're not the good news about Jesus. They're other stuff. Um, so you've already got all this material being collected and used. One of the funny things is there are some scholars who want to uh, discard some of Paul's writings today. They say they're not authentically Pauline, um, if, including, for instance, the pastoral epistles, First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus. And those are actually some of the first things quoted. They're quoted already uh, right around 100 AD. I mean, within a few years of Paul's death, they're being quoted, and we have copies of them being quoted. You know, uh, they may have been quoted within a few days of them being written, but we don't have copies of that. But we do have copies of materials, uh, um, sermons and, and, and so on, where those things are being quoted. So uh, the, the early church has recognized these things. They already have kind of a list of these books in uh, the 100s. It isn't until the 300s where they sit down and say, okay, there are so many people coming up with wacko ideas on what belongs. Here is the list. But that doesn't create the canon. It just says this is the list. By the way, the word canon means ruler, like a measuring stick. So these are the books by which we measure life. That's, that's what it is. Well, let me, let me end with this last question on that scientific nature. Um, as a scientific, logical, academic mind, why, Wally, are you a Christian, right? Why, why do you believe this book? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you put your faith in there? Um, when you live in a community um, of brilliant minds, because they seem to, everyone feels like they must contradict each other. Do you feel like they do contradict each other? But truly, I just want to know, why are you a Christian? Why are you personally a Christian? Uh, I don't have any option. I mean, I look at the data. Nothing answers all the points of data for me the way God does. Hmm. Um, by the way, uh, Jesus tells us in his repetition of what's called the Shema, the basic prayer of Judaism, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with everything you've got. Uh, Jesus kind of... Um, in, his, uh, in how he cites that, says, love God with all of your mind. So God does not ask you to check your brains at the door. Right. He wants you to use that in engaging with him. Let me tell you, just really, I hope we've got enough time for this. Um, Depends how long it is. Okay. Um, <laughs> when I was going to school at Northwest as a student, I wrote a paper once on Riemannian curved space, the Lawrence transformations, and the eternality of God. Yep, I, I read it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, <laughs> I don't it, even know what you said, but continue. It, it, it came from, I'm reading 1 Timothy, and in chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says, talks about the God who is alone, immortal, and invisible, and dwells in unapproachable light, whom nobody has seen, and so on. And I thought, wait a second, that reminds me of something in Einstein's theory of relativity, where as you approach the speed of light, you gain infinite mass, you, are, you don't have dimension in the direction of travel, and you are beyond time. Now, okay, real geek stuff, sorry about that. Um, what science hasn't told us is how to be God. What it's done is given us a mathematical formula for what a being who dwells beyond the speed of light. And this is, uh, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, God clothes himself with light as with a garment and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Now, that wasn't meant, 
when, when the psalmist was writing that, he hadn't read Einstein. <laughs> He's speaking poetically. You know, the God who uses light as you and I might use fabric. Right. Okay? <laughs> um, and yet, he describes something that uh, brilliant minds today are just starting to comprehend, and they're, they're working out models for what it would be like to be a being who is beyond the speed of light. And it happens to describe a, a person who is omnipotent, equals mc squared. If you've got infinite mass, you've got infinite energy. Uh, you are beyond time, so you dwell in the eternal now. You can be everywhere at once, all of these things. It's just so cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, we, we talked about literal and literary. Mm -hmm. The literary thing is it's a hymn of praise to God. Yeah. But it's really cool because the ultimate author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, describes God using terms that just make me sit there with my mouth open and say, wow. Yeah. So it's really cool. That is cool. Wally, thank you so much for, for coming out again and Pleasure. being here. I mean, it's so great. Would you guys thank Wally for thank you. his yeah. time? Yeah. <laughs> Truly, every time I sit down and, um, and, and chat with you, I am just, I'm so thrilled for what God has done. And, and what he's written. It is so good. It is so good. And, in, and again, as we've said before, it is a crazy book. But when I sit and I hear and we unpack and we pull back the layers, we're not crazy to believe it. No. Right. And uh, and that's and that's and I love that. And I love that. Not to it, well, that's amazing. Crazy not to believe it. Um, and that was your answer. You said the data points yep. to the evidence of God. And that's why you believe. Yep. That's beautiful. Well, thank you for coming, Wally. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to have a, there's no, um, no song at the end. We're not going to jump back into it. What I'm simply going to do is pray and head us out of here. But before we pray, I want to make you aware of what's happening next week. We're going to be, today we're concluding this series that we're doing text. Next week, we're going to start a new series um, entitled Dangerous Prayers. We're going to look at three prayers out of the Bible that are probably the most dangerous that you could possibly pray. And our encouragement would be simply this, is that we would I would encourage us as a congregation to start praying these dangerous prayers. And so that's what we're going to jump into. It is risky. Uh, it truly is risky. If you truly take this thing seriously, it is risky. So let's, uh, let's do this. Let's bow our heads, and then we'll walk on out of here.